Welcome to Disciple Dojo. We're continuing our video series where we just walk through the Psalms and point out things along the way that are interesting about them. If you missed the first video in this series, you can check it out in the playlist here on the channel. But these aren't chronological. The Psalms aren't a storyline. They don't have a plot. Each one can stand on its own. But as we talked about in the first video, this is Israel's hymn book. This is Israel's I would say top 40, but there are 150 of them. So this is Israel's top 150. These are the songs that they grew up singing. These are the poems, the music that shaped their view of who they were and who God was. And these are the expressions that gave them the words to cry out to God, to celebrate in joy, to lift their voices in despair, or to do everything in between. The Psalms gave Israel their theological lexicon. And so it's no coincidence that when the New Testament writers are looking at the events of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, when they're trying to see how the gospel fits into and is the culmination of the identity of God's people, Israel, they look to the Psalms for clues on that. They look to the Psalms for the words that could express the images, the long-awaited promises, the yearnings of God's people, the promises of God to his people. And all of these things were swirling around in the minds of every faithful first century Jewish man and woman. And so in the last video, we saw that Psalm 1 presents sort of two ways that people can choose to go in life. They can go in the way of someone who delights in Torah, in God's word, in God's covenant, or they can go in the way of the wicked. They can walk the road to destruction. And Jesus himself said, many are going to go that way. Few will end up going this way. Prophetically warning his listeners, urging them to choose the way that leads to Asherah or Makarios, blessedness. So now we're going to come to Psalm 2. If Psalm 1 was about deciding to immerse yourself in Torah, then Psalm 2 is about choosing to ally yourself with Israel's Messiah, with the Davidic king that God has anointed. That's what the word Christ or Messiah, it just means anointed one. And this was a term in ancient theocratic Israel for the legitimate anointed king in the line of David. So like we did in the last video, I'll read Psalm 2, and then maybe we'll look at a few things in the Hebrew, the Greek, or some of the various translations, and we'll just note what's interesting. Psalm 2 in the old NIV says, Why do the nations conspire and peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, you should have picked up on an inclusio there from Psalm 1. Psalm 2 ends with blessed are. And that's how Psalm 1 began. And so a lot of interpreters see Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as almost like one song with two parts, one about 
God and Torah and one about God's Messiah, the Davidic king. So let's walk through the sections and kind of see if we can wrap our minds around what's going on in this song. So it begins literally, Lama, why the Goyim, this is the word for Gentile, so you might say the nations or Gentiles or, or heathen or something like that, the non-Israelites, non-covenant people, why do they conspire? Why did the Gentiles conspire and the peoples plot in vain or plot vainly? So the psalmist is looking at the nations, the Israel's enemies surrounding peoples and, and saying, why are they conspiring? Why are they plotting in vain? This is foolish. Why would they even do it? And it's foolish because of who they're doing it against. Verse two, and I'll just read the LEB, the kings of the earth established themselves you know, they take their stand, puff themselves up, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord, against Yahweh and his anointed, Mashicho, his Messiah. This is the word Mashiach. So these rulers, these nations, these, these empires, these goyim, the peoples, they're conspiring, they're plotting. This is an image of the Davidic king who's ruling on behalf of the divine king, Yahweh, which is what, according to the covenant, the king of Israel was supposed to do. And the nations are gathering around and, and conspiring to rebel against this. And this is what they're saying. Verse three, let's tear off their bonds and cast their cords from us. Now, the irony of this song is that almost at no point in Israel's history did Israel's king rule over any of the other nations. This is an aspirational song. Even Solomon, at the height of his power, didn't rule over the nations. When the Psalms were written, Israel wasn't an empire. If anything, when the Psalms were at least compiled and put together in the form we have them, Israel was usually on the receiving end of empirical rule. Israel was often the one who were in fetters, who were wrapped in cords, metaphorically, but sometimes literally, like with under Assyria or Babylon, or later the Greek rulers or Rome. So this is not an historical psalm about a specific event. This is an aspirational image. This is a theological image of a future ruler, messianic anointed one of whom this will be true. So verse four goes on. He who sits enthroned in the heavens laughs. The Lord derides them. This is an image that is ubiquitous in the Old Testament of these great empires that fancied themselves as divine. You know, whether it was the Babylonians, the Assyrians, whether it was the Egyptians, all of their rulers considered their reign to be the reign of their gods on the earth. And so the psalmist is sort of ironically putting that image back on them and saying, you guys are nothing compared to the true king, our king, Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord, the one who sits enthroned, not on a throne in a city, but overall creation. And his Messiah, his anointed one, who reigns and rules on his behalf on earth. So this is the image that's being painted, this, the, the aspirational messianic celebratory song. And so God speaks to them, the, the, these goyim who are plotting to overthrow and to stand against the king of the universe and his messianic ruler on this earth. In verse 5, then he speaks to them in his wrath, and in his fury he terrifies them. And what does God say to them? He says, but I, or but as for me, or in Hebrew, it's Vlani, but I, me, in, in other words, me and nobody else, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So God has said, this is the only legitimate ruler, my anointed, none of these other kings of the nations. And now in verse 7, this anointed ruler speaks, this king speaks, and he says, I will tell the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask from me and I will make the nations your heritage and your possession to the ends of the earth. You will break them like an iron rod, like a potter's vessel, you will shatter them. So you have this messianic figure, this king of Israel. Now most interpreters say this is a song that was sung at the coronation of a new Davidic king in Israel. When a new king ascended the throne, this was sort of the, the celebration of that and, and kind of speaking into being as the reality that Israel would live under, even though it never really was, that the king of Israel was God's son. So this is an interesting thing when you read the New Testament. The phrase son of God, we think of that as modern readers and we think, oh, the son of God, that means he's God. So if Jesus claims to be the son of God, he's claiming to be God. But it's actually the opposite. The, the claim that Jesus made when he called himself son of man, that was actually the one that he was sort of co-identifying himself with God. And that's for another time. But son of God was the title for Israel's king. Israel's king was metaphorically the son of God. And Israel's king embodied the people of Israel collectively. And Israel collectively was the son of God. That's the language that's found in the Exodus account. That's the language that's found in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I called my son. And so now the king, as the figurehead, as the, as the, the corporate solidarity identity of Israel, the king can take upon himself that identity. The king can be the son of God, the son of Yahweh. And this is not too different than the other ancient kings and Israel's neighbors claimed for themselves. Pharaoh was seen as the son of Ra. Various kings fancied themselves, described themselves, portrayed themselves as a son of whoever the divinity was that they worshiped. The ancient world was full of divine beings, gods and goddesses having legitimate and illegitimate offspring. So this is a language that would be at home in the ancient Near East, but it's language that's being ascribed to Israel's king, Israel's anointed one, Israel's Messiah as being Yahweh's son. And God tells his son, ask of me whatever you want. I'll give it to the ends of the earth. The son of God, the Messiah is the only one who ultimately will possess to the ends of the earth rule the entire world. This is the vision that Psalm 2 paints of the Messiah, is the worldwide ruler on behalf of the ruler of the universe, the only legitimate one who can claim to rule all the earth. That's what empires claim. Every empire that's arisen wants to do what? To conquer the world. Every empire wants to spread its power and its glory and its prestige and bring peace and bring joy and prosperity and typically a lot of bombs and a lot of bullets and to expand itself. And what Psalm 2 is saying is there's only one that's ever going to experience that, and that's God's Messiah, 
anointed one. And those who, like the beginning of this psalm, rage and conspire and plot against God and his Messiah, they don't stand a chance. They will be destroyed. They will be, like in Psalm 1, the way of the wicked is going to be to destruction and being blown away like chaff. In Psalm 2, it's an image of a potter. You'll break them with an iron rod like a potter's vessel. You'll shatter them. So you have an image of judgment or or conquering. And this is, again, found throughout the ancient Near East. The irony is that this is being applied to Israel's king rather than the king of these great and mighty empires. And it contrasts two things, an iron rod and a piece of pottery. And when those clash, only one of them is shattered, and that's the pottery, and that's exactly what it is. You'll break them with an iron rod. Like a potter's vessel, you will shatter them. So then, verse 10, the conclusion to this song, so then, O kings, all of the kings of the nations, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. In other words, this song, this this triumphant military uh, image of aspirational glory and power of Israel's Messiah is being sung to generate among the kings of the earth wisdom, that they don't choose to take their stand against Yahweh and his anointed one, and that they be warned, that they know their place that rulers don't set themselves up in the place of God or to be God or to reign over all the earth. This is a warning because only the Messiah and the Messiah alone will ever have legitimate claim to a worldwide empire. So instead of doing that, they need to, verse 11, serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. And this word, if do, serve, it, it can mean serve or it can mean worship. In Exodus, this is the word. It has both of those senses when Israel's taken out of serving Pharaoh, working for Pharaoh, and taken into the wilderness so that they may worship God. Well, it's this word, so that they may serve me. So to serve is to worship. And so that's what the song is calling the kings of the earth to do. And that's not something that kings did in the ancient world. Kings were served. Kings didn't come to serve, but to be served. What did Jesus say in the New Testament? I haven't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's what the true son of God, that's the paradox of the glory of the Messiah, is the only one who legitimately can claim the right to be served. What did he do? He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He wrapped the towel around his waist and went around and washed the dirty, stinky feet of his disciples before he was arrested and crucified. And Psalm 2, all the way back in Psalm 211, is telling the kings of the earth to take this approach, to serve and to serve Yahweh, to serve, to worship the true king of kings, the one who establishes all the kings of the earth to begin with and sets limits on their power. And so verse 12 then calls them not only to serve Yahweh, but to kiss the son. And, you know, we think of kiss in like a romantic way, but a a kiss was a greeting and a show of respect and affection in the ancient world. And so this is a this is a way of of clearly acknowledging the son. And who is the son? As we've seen a few verses earlier, the son is Israel's king. So kiss the Son, pledge covenant loyalty to the Son, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the King, lest he be angry and you perish on the way. Derek, this is also, I think, a callback to Psalm 1 and the way of the wicked. For his anger burns quickly 
Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So it caps off what began in Psalm 1, focusing it on Israel's Messiah. So this was a royal enthronement psalm in ancient Israel. You can see why to the New Testament authors, knowing that Jesus is the true Messiah, believing because of his resurrection and his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit, believing that he is the one that all of the Messiahs in Israel's past were looking forward to. All the Messiahs in Israel's past, all the anointed ones were just hints and shadows of what ultimately Jesus himself would be. The New Testament authors then, now when they sing this song from their hymn book, now when they sing Psalm 2 about kiss the son lest he be angry, ask me and I'll give you as an inheritance all the nations of the earth. The kings who stand against you will be smashed like pottery with an iron rod. These are images that Israel, especially in the first century under Roman rule, would sing as a longing and an aspiration for nationalistic, military, conquering, messianic hopes. That's the spirit that they sung this song with. And that's what makes it so wild when Jesus comes on the scene and he says, yeah, I am that Messiah, but it's not going to look like that. It's going to look different. And then after his resurrection and his ascension and the sending of the spirit and him opening their eyes to the scriptures and they go back and they reread this song and they think, oh, this isn't about establishing a a small theocratic empire that's going to like all the other empires of the world spread and grow. This is about establishing the kingdom of God and God's messianic reign is going to reach the ends of the earth. Jesus commissioned his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, but it's not going to come through a conquering military dictator. It's not going to come by winning battles against earthly kings. It's going to come by freeing people from the very evil that animates and gives rise to those empirical desires to begin with. It's not going to be against flesh and blood armies. It's going to be against the rulers and principalities and all of the spiritual powers in the heavenly places. This is how the New Testament looks back and reanalyzes this song in light of the events of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit. So I hope this helps as you read Psalm 2. It's a very important psalm. The New Testament does make reference to it on multiple occasions. So we need to see it as faithful Israelites of the first century would have seen it. We need to then see it through the eyes of the new covenant and the events of the gospel and how Jesus himself went about embodying it. And then we need to see now how will this look eschatologically as the kingdom of God continues to spread and as God's enemies are no longer specific countries with kings and rulers leading armies into battle, but are the spiritual forces that animate those empires to begin with. The hand pulling the string of the puppets, the evil one himself. So that's what Psalm 2 leaves us with. Stay tuned for the next video where we'll look at, mm, how about Psalm 3? We'll continue to make our way through the Psalms and see what we can learn from them and how they can help shape us the way they've shaped God's people for 3,000 years now. That's all for now. If you haven't subscribed already, really appreciate it if you do that. We'll see you back here next time. And as always, keep training.